0: Today we find ourselves at the beginning of Romans chapter 11, so take your Bibles. If you haven't been with us in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is vindicating the gospel. He is defending it. He has gotten to a point in his letter to the church at Rome where many of the things that he has said in chapters 1 through 8 bring up an anticipated challenge of saying, okay, if, if all of this is true, Paul, chapters one through eight, then what are we supposed to do with the nation of Israel? How are we supposed to understand what has gone on there, what God's relationship with them is, what his purposes and plans are, and how how can we know he is faithful? How can we know that the gospel is what you're saying it is, given what has happened to the nation of Israel? If truly both Jews and Gentiles are saved and only saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what is the whole deal with the entire Old Testament, really? What is the deal with the covenant of Moses? And what are we to do with what appears to be the disintegration of the nation of Israel and their relationship with God? What do we do with all of God's promises? What do we do with all of the things that he said will take place and what he's going to do with Israel? Is all of that done? Did somehow it get completely blown up and it's over? And so he's vindicating the gospel, the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he defends this gospel because if the Jew is saved in the same way as the Gentile, if a Jewish person is saved by the same gospel as a Gentile, then how could we say that the whole thing is not a farce? And how can the God of the gospel still be sovereign and still be blameless in his sovereignty? Paul affirms in these chapters that God is sovereign, he keeps his promises. And he exercises election, choosing whom he will save by his own counsel and according to his own purposes alone. Also, God is blameless, not because he can justify his actions by some standard of righteousness, but because he and he alone is God and establishes, determines what is right and what is just by what he does. And even though God exercises election, people are culpable. Human beings made in his image, whom he has created in his image, are culpable before God for their sin and the rebellion against him. Every person bears the blame for rejecting him, and so does Israel. Based on what Paul says in chapter 10, it would be reasonable to conclude that Israel is indeed done for, that they are cast out. In chapter 10, verse 16, he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. In chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, they have heard, they have understood, but they have refused God's salvation. In chapter 10, verse 21, in conclusion, they are a disobedient and contrary people. Israel's status is actually one of the common dividing points among Christians. It's a dividing point because it is a dividing point between two theologies, two theological systems. There are those who argue that God is done with Israel And that he has replaced Israel with the church. And so the church now becomes the people of God, displacing the old people of God and now inheriting all of God's promises. Others claim that the church and Israel are distinct. That the church does not replace Israel but rather joins Israel as a distinct and separate outworking of the kingdom. Therefore, God's promises to Israel are still intact. Some of them must still be fulfilled. And so Israel, as a nation, yet has a future in God's plans. Now, these two different theological perspectives are very important because they influence how how we read and understand many parts of the Bible, They especially impact how we understand the nature of the church, the people of God, and future things, what God has prophesied will take place. If Paul's discussion of Israel ended with Romans chapter 10, you would probably have to conclude that Israel is out of it and has no future. But with Romans chapter 11, Paul provides an answer to that conclusion. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That is the question, isn't it? And the rest of chapter 11 answers this question in two parts. In verses 1 through 10, we see Israel's preservation. Israel is actually preserved. In verses 11 through 36, we see Israel's hope. Israel's preservation and Israel's hope. Today, we are just looking at verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Lord, again, we come to you this morning as your people and we rejoice in your mercy toward us and your love for us. And Lord, we know that we would not know your mercy and your grace if it were not for Jesus' death on the cross the sacrifice of his own life, even though he had never sinned, the sacrifice of his own life in our behalf, in our place. And so we thank you for that. And we come now to these verses in Romans with open hearts, asking that you would give us understanding and discernment, and Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in your great plans, in your great purposes for humanity and for history, for the building up of your church and your own glory. Amen. Has God rejected his people? No. God is preserving Israel, and he will be faithful to fulfill all of his promises. And so we see that, first of all, Israel is Preserved by the impossibility of rejection. The impossibility of rejection. Verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Here, Here is Paul again being emphatic. No way. No way has God rejected his people. Well, how can it be a no way? How can you say by no means when you've just talked about how God has set Israel aside, has hardened Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, when you've talked about him loving Jacob and hating Esau, how can you say no way he hasn't rejected his people? Well, Paul, first of all, offers himself as proof positive, doesn't he? It is no way because Paul himself is both a Jew and a Christian. How can Israel be rejected when Paul himself is both an Israelite and chosen by grace? So Paul offers himself as evidence that God cannot have rejected his people, the people of Israel, because other Jews, like Paul, continue to believe in Christ, continue to repent of sin, continue to be saved, and to know God's blessings. Even though a Christian, even though an apostle, Paul can still identify himself as an Israelite, as a descendant of Abraham, as a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and at the same time, one who is chosen, not rejected. And if you read this list in Philippians 3, where Paul says many of these same things, you will find that he lists these things in Philippians chapter three as credentials that he no longer cares anything about because they do nothing to gain him righteousness before God. But when it comes to his identity as a believer, Paul still recognizes that he is a living, breathing example of how God is actually saving some among Israel. Here, Paul's heritage and his lineage are proof that Israel is not shut out. Also, God's foreknowledge makes rejection impossible. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, we've... We've seen this word before, haven't we, in Romans? Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this knowing, then, is God's election. And when Paul uses the word foreknow or foreknew, it's the context that really establishes in what way he's using it. So in chapter 8, verse 29, he's talking about believers. God foreknew believers. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 here, verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the relationship that God established with the nation of Israel. As God says to Israel in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth this known this knowing is god's election when god says that to the people of israel in amos chapter 3 verse 2 he's not saying you're the only people i know about you're not the only people whose future i knew he's saying you are the only people i have known that i have established a relationship with that I have called out from all of the other nations. So, for God then to foreknow someone is for God to pre-establish a relationship before that person has even existed. In this case, Romans eleven two, it is God foreknowing Israel as a nation. God established a relationship with the nation of Israel before the nation of Israel ever existed. And Paul's reasoning is, if God chose Israel by his sovereign grace to begin with, how could Israel's failure cancel his designs and his promises ultimately? God had already known. God had already foreknown them. But how does this this still create by itself, a dilemma, doesn't it? Paul's going to unravel it here. But this still creates the dilemma. If God foreknew this nation and established the relationship as a nation, then how did it go sideways? And if it went sideways, how can we say that Israel is still preserved? Israel is preserved through the keeping of a remnant. So first of all, Israel is preserved by the impossibility of rejection. And Israel is preserved through the keeping of a remnant. Now, Paul points to the Old Testament scriptures for proof that God has not rejected his people, but also for an explanation of how he doesn't reject them, but keeps them. How he remains faithful to his promises without compromising his holiness. Israel disobeyed. Israel rebelled. God is in his full right to reject them. Yet he's made certain promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob that do not depend on Israel's obedience to be fulfilled. So how is it then that he can remain faithful? And the answer is that God keeps a remnant today, just as he did in the days of... Of Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah's appeal to God against Israel, as Paul says it here, is found in 1 Kings chapter 19. And some of you will know this story. Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest to see who the one true God was. And you'll remember that that they went up on the Mount of Carmel. And the prophets of Baal set up an altar, they put a sacrifice up there to be consumed by fire, and they, according to the, the, uh, the terms of the contest, they called upon Baal to take the offering, to burn the offering. Not to, They couldn't light it themselves, Baal himself had to, had to consume the offering. And they go into crazy, uh, all kinds of rituals and ceremonies, cutting themselves, all kinds of things. To try to get Baal's attention, nothing happens. Elijah then, in response, not only prays to God to come and consume the the sacrifice, the offering, but he he has the people gather jugs, huge vats of water, and douses, completely saturates the offering, the wood, the stone altar, everything in water. 12 of these vats of water, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And then he calls upon God, and the fire falls. And not only does it consume the animal sacrifice and the wood, it consumes all of the stones. And the people cry out, There is one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Elijah, in response, then executes all of the false prophets. This outrages King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who is in the book of 1 Kings, Elijah's kind of arch nemesis for godlessness. Jezebel begins to hunt Elijah, who in turn flees into the wilderness, discouraged. And you remember the story. He's out alone in the wilderness, and God visits him and eventually speaks to him in a small, quiet voice. Right? But it is there in the wilderness that Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. They are winning, they have rejected you. And even after you have displayed your glory, your uniqueness as the one true God, they are now seeking my life. There's nobody else who's faithful. Why should I go back and proclaim? Why should I do anything? I'm only left to kind of run for my life. You see, from Elijah's viewpoint, the nation's state of rebellion was hopeless. And he was watching Israel's downfall because of their unbelief and their disobedience. So was Paul. Paul sees in the nation's response to the preaching of the gospel, to the presentation of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their downfall because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And Paul, like Elijah, finds comfort in the Lord's reply to Elijah's despair. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee To Baal, chapter 11, verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, there were things that Elijah didn't know. Even though he is in Israel's history, the second most important and powerful prophet, it's always who in the New Testament, who's always pointed to as the the summary of the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And so even Elijah doesn't know, even Elijah is not aware that God in his sovereignty has preserved 7,000 men who worship him. Now, there are two important observations about what Paul is, the analogy, the illustration that Paul is drawing here. It's not really just an analogy; it's a type. He's saying God is doing the same thing again. And what happened in Elijah's day is a picture, a pointer forward to what God continues to do. First of all, despite the apparently hopeless state of Israel's relationship with the Lord, he continues to care for his people. And he continues to keep his promises by keeping a remnant a remnant who believes, a remnant who worships the one true God. Secondly, it is God's keeping these 7,000 men that has prevented them from bowing the knee to Baal, not the other way around. In other words, it isn't because these 7,000 have not worshiped Baal that God decides to keep them. Their faithfulness is not the cause of God's preserving grace. It is the result. And just in case any of us want to misunderstand the cause and effect in this verse, Paul returns to grace. Verse 5, so too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. There is a remnant because they are chosen by grace in Elijah's day, in Paul's day, and in our day. It must be by God's grace. Which means... It is no longer on the basis of works, Paul says here. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not just that it's an earning versus a gift. He's saying that it's human accomplishment versus God's accomplishment. And that our works, our trying to, by effort, elevate ourselves to a state of right relationship with God is an affront to God's glory. Not only is it ineffective, you can't do it, but it's offensive to God because God's grace is what brings him glory. The remnant is kept by grace, not because they made greater effort to keep the law or because they accomplished more of it. Now maybe you're thinking, well, if there's a remnant in Paul's day, like there was in Elijah's, and there's a remnant today, like there was in Paul's day, then where's the remnant? You know, are they hidden out in the wilderness of Judea somewhere? No, I believe that the remnant that Paul is talking about here are Jewish people who become Christians, they become believers, they are included in the church. And if you look at Ephesians 2, this is exactly what Paul says is the mystery that was hidden, hidden in the Old Testament Scriptures and now revealed, now pulled out of there. God had been saying it all along. It's all present there, but now he pulls it out, and God has made himself one new man, one new humanity out of Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the walls of hostility. That's what the church is. Now, we may apply that unity in the gospel and say, look, all nations, all peoples, we're all together. We're all the people of God. We're one people. But in the New Testament, the most significant barrier that is broken down is between Jew and Gentile. Because when you look at the relationship between Israel and God and the Gentile nations and God, that is the primary storyline that God is working out in history. And it must be by God's grace. So, Israel is preserved through a remnant, through the keeping of a remnant. Lastly, Israel is preserved despite the failure of the rest. The rest. That's what Paul, that's the term Paul uses here, the rest, verses 7 through 10. Now watch, in verse 7, Paul speaks of Israel from two different perspectives, okay? Okay? First of all, he speaks of Israel as a corporate whole, as a nation, as a people group. Second, he speaks of them as a people, a nation that are actually divided into two groups, two entities. As a corporate whole, Israel failed, this is verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What then? As a whole the nation failed to gain the righteousness that it was seeking it failed to gain the messiah and his salvation that literally it says is seeking or seeks so they have they have failed to obtain what they are seeking what they seek as if to say it is still ultimately what they seek I've recently watched The Fiddler on the Roof, introduced it to my kids, and watched it my daughter especially. And it's interesting to me that uh, of course, the storyline is about the Reptevia and this family that's in Anatevka in Ukraine, actually, is where they're located. And you see in it the Jewish understanding, okay, portrayed. And, of course, Reptevia is always talking to God. And he's always having this conversation, right? And these questions. But the questions that he asks, if you go back and watch it, the questions that he asks, the answers that the rabbi gives, the conversations that they have, all speak from the perspective of a people who have rejected their Messiah and yet are still waiting on God to do something. Still looking to the Old Testament scriptures. He wants to talk about the holy books with the rabbis. That's his great desire. It's a great picture of how, even today, that mentality, even though it's portraying years before, in the mid 1900s, late 1800s, but it's portraying this mentality. That Paul reveals in Romans chapters 9 through 11. There is a remnant and there is a rest. So the nation as a whole then has failed to gain its righteousness, it has failed to gain this this salvation that it seeks. That is the conclusion in its broadest terms. But in reality, this corporate Israel is divided into two groups. As Paul said back in Romans 9, verse 6 For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There is a remnant and there are the rest. Though Israel as a whole failed to obtain righteousness and God's favor, the elect obtained it. How? By grace. By grace, this is the remnant. But the rest were hardened, Paul says. They were hardened. Again, this is one of those behind-the-curtain statements. It's one of those things that reveals what God is actually doing sovereignly behind the curtain. On the street-level view, Israel has rebelled. They have refused God's righteousness in Christ. And yet, behind the curtain, there is a hardening work of God going on. And in hardening them, God is confirming his judgment on humanity because of their sin. In their sin. And as hard as it may be to resolve, Paul shows it to be revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Right? Verse 8. As it is written. And what Paul does here in verse 8 is he combines... verse from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and a verse from Isaiah chapter 29 to say, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then in verses 9 through 10, he points to David's words, which are Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So once again, Paul takes what for a Jewish person was their Old Testament in three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he quotes from every one of them, each of them to make a point that across the entire Old Testament Scriptures, this correction, this condemnation of Israel's rebellion was revealed and addressed. And he points back to the law and what it said about this spirit of stupor, and then he points to Isaiah chapter 29 and the prophets to combine to show this, that even Israel's hardness to the prophets and to God's warnings, saying, you're gonna go into captivity, you're going to be taken away, you're going to be destroyed, they would not hear. That they had no eyes to see and no ears to hear is now being repeated. It's the culmination of the hardness of their hearts to reject their Messiah. And then he quotes David in Psalm 69, where David is actually talking about Israel's enemies. And Paul takes these words and actually applies them to the people of Israel. That this applies to them because they have rejected God's anointed one, the capital K king. We know that this difference exists. Let me show you somewhere else where this happens. It's really in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. I've said that the, that the remnant today in our day is, in this age, in this era, are Israelites who believe the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching. It's the first gospel gospel. Sermon, first gospel message. And in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's talking about the Roman government. He's talking about Gentiles there, lawless men, who don't have the law of God. You have the law, and you crucified and killed him by using Rome. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you did not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David... How do these particular Jews respond to the proclamation with repentance? Here is the elect obtaining it. Here is the beginning of the remnant. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself to you and to your children. God is saying, through the gospel, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all of God's promises are being fulfilled to you and offered to you. But not only to you, to those who are far off, that's us, that's the Gentile world, that's everybody else. Of course, as it plays out on the pages of Acts, Peter doesn't even understand what that means till chapter ten. So there's repentance. The church has begun, and the first church is a Jewish church. They are Jewish believers in Jerusalem. As time goes by, here days go by. Peter and the apostles continue to do miracles, and in chapter four they are hauled in before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. For having healed a beggar, a lame beggar. And they challenged them with this. How did you do this? Specifically in chapter 4, verse 7. By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 7. That was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, do they respond in the same way as the crowds on the southern steps of the temple in chapter 2? No, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, They had them step out. What do we do? What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There is irrefutable evidence that God is on their side, and we can't hide it. We can't stop it. Maybe we should repent. No, verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. There's the rest. And like Paul says in Romans chapter 10, have they not heard? Have they not understood? Yes. And the crowds at the south end of the temple in Acts chapter 22 are the remnant. They are those who by God's grace are called to believe and exercise faith. And in Acts, we're given the street-level view. In Romans chapter 11, we're told the the behind-the-curtain view, do you see? They respond with faith and repentance. They receive the gospel. They're saved. The church is born. And then the Jews, two chapters later, who are challenged with the same correction, you crucified The Messiah that God sent, the one you were waiting for, you murdered him. You rejected him, and you fulfilled scripture by doing so. And they have to recognize, they even recognize among themselves that God has spoken, God is working, God is on Peter and John's side. And what do they do? They seek to somehow quiet them instead of repenting. So this is played out, you see. And it plays out even today. It continues to go on and on and on and on. What is the conclusion then? Seek God's grace. That's really the conclusion. Because you are told what goes on behind the curtain, you are to live at the street level. You seek God's grace. The offer of salvation. In the name of Jesus alone is still offered to Jew and Gentile. This is the age. Today is the day. And I don't know how long that door is open. Nobody knows how long that door is open. And it will only be shut when God shuts it. When God begins to wrap up history. But today is the day of salvation, right? We are to seek God's grace. And if you say, well, What are we to do then if this is true and Israel is being preserved? What's their future? Is it just the church? Because there's still a question, well, is the church in this new inclusion of Israel and the people of God, what does that mean for them as a nation? That is what Paul discusses in the next verses, all right, Israel's hope for our next time in Romans. Lord, go with us now as we worship and remember the cross and your sacrifice and communion be among us lord be pleased with, with the offerings not only of our of our words our songs our prayers but lord of our hearts for you are working things out precisely without falter, without error, according to your plans and your purposes. You have, through your foreknowledge, called us as your people, and may we live with that confidence. And for any who would not know this grace, Lord, may you give life. To the dead. May you open the eyes of the blind and save. In your name we ask these things. Amen.